welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 70. Last week, I continued working my way through Exodus, and that episode covering date palms and oases, and also managed to work in reeds and the Sinai Peninsula. This week, I'm covering what is known about manna, and with that, let's get started. Manna is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 16, where it reads, beginning in verse 2, and from the New Revised Standard Version, The whole congregation of Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. In each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them, whether they follow my instruction or not. End quote. Then in verse 13 it reads, In the evening quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, and omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. End quote. Then skipping ahead to verse 31, the house of Israel called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And that's the end of the final quote, for now. So, overall, we see that it is an edible substance, at least akin to what we call bread, albeit in a much smaller form. And there are several other attributes we can determine from various places in the Old Testament. Obviously, in Exodus, it's described as small, and possibly round like a coriander seed, but white. It's also described in the same chapter as being fine and flake-like, like the frost on the ground. I'm having a hard time reconciling that it was round like coriander, and also flake-like. But, things get lost in translation. Also, I'm sure that I would have a hard time describing it. And, I'm supposed to be good with words. Which gets me to a quick sidebar. A good bit of this episode will be spent attempting to explain what manna may have been in terms of natural things, like plant and animal things. But don't lose sight of one thing, and that's that manna fed the Israelites for 40 years, and that itself is miraculous. And, as a miracle, it by definition, defies our ability to explain it. Of course, that hasn't stopped anyone yet. In other translations of the Hebrew Old Testament to English, manna is described as being like hoarfrost, at least in color. Which, to be honest, means very little to me. So I did a little research, and as it turns out, hoarfrost is essentially what I've called regular frost for, well, 
a very long time. So, it was like frost on the ground. Which raises another question. If the Israelites had been in Egypt for over 400 years, how did they know what frost looked like? Remember last week when I covered the Sinai Peninsula and mentioned that it's the coldest part of Egypt, due primarily to the elevation? There's your answer. Finally, it had the curious property of melting in the heat of the sun. Skeptics may say it was simply frost, and that would possibly fit the bill. Except for one thing, frost is merely water and has no nutritional value outside of hydration. So there's no way it would have sustained the wandering Israelites for generations. The differences in descriptions could have been due to differing taste of the people who ate it. Some have proposed that it tasted like honey to children, like bread to youths, and like oil to those a bit older. Classical rabbinical literature also attempts to clarify if manna came before or after the dew by claiming that the manna was sandwiched between two layers of dew, one falling before the manna and the other after. Manna is also mentioned in the book of Numbers in chapter 11, where it's said to have the appearance of delium, at least in some translations. Other translations simply describe it as gum resin, without the more specific delium reference. But still, that's another description that doesn't do me much good. So, a little more research. As it turns out, delium is a fragrant resin produced by a number of trees related to myrrh, and is used in perfume. Numbers also tells us of how the Israelites ground the manna and pounded it into cakes, which were then baked, resulting in something that tasted like cakes baked with oil. Now that I can relate to. Exodus described raw manna as tasting like wafers that had been made with honey and, when it was stored, it bred worms, or in some translations, simply maggots, and it stank before the start of the next day. Stank. Moses, in the translator's word, not mine. Stink, stank, stunk. Now, it did stink, except for the manna that was gathered on day six of the week. It would last through the Sabbath. And that's it for the Old Testament. Well, except for a few references in various other books, where the history of what happened during the 40 years of wandering and afterwards is recounted. Manna is also found in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, at first again recounting the history of the desert, but then Jesus uses the manna as an example. I would paraphrase, but why would I paraphrase when John quoted Jesus, who said, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." End quote. So, God fed the Israelites bread, manna from heaven, as part of the covenant he made with them, and Jesus, as part of the new covenant, is the bread from heaven. Hebrews has a passing reference to it, 
and the Revelation says it will be given to the chosen. And that's it for the biblical references. Manna merits a mention in the Islamic Quran, but it again is a historical reference to the food provided by God to the wandering Israelites. Which still leaves us wondering, what is this food from heaven, if we can explain it at all? Well, the Egyptians had a word that as best as I can pronounce it is menu, and simply translates to food. And that makes a certain amount of sense, since the word resembles the word menu. Probably coincidental. Then something a bit different. In the early 20th century, perhaps even further back, the inhabitants of the Sinai Peninsula sold resin from the tamarisk tree and called it Essima. This roughly translates as heavenly manna. This resin is edible and is composed primarily of sugar, to the point that it even has an aroma similar to honey. It's also akin to wax, so it would melt in the heat of the sun. Finally, it's a dirty yellow color, essentially checking all of the boxes of the descriptions found in the Bible. But, since it's mostly sugar, other than calories, there's not enough nutrition in it to sustain people for decades. But, let's explore it just for a minute. Tamarisk trees are thought to have been, historically, found fairly extensively throughout southern Sinai. These are hardy evergreen trees and shrubs that tolerate extremely poor soil conditions. They can grow up to about 60 feet or 18 meters tall. The wood was actually used by the Scythians to make bows, as in bows and arrows. The resin really isn't compactable in the cakes though. Probably just a case of 20th century nomads marketing a food that fit the description. Somewhat. A different camp believes that the manna could have been a form of lichen. Lichen is essentially a fungus that forms colonies. As a fungus, scientists do not consider them to be plants, and they are not particularly nutritious and occasionally poisonous, but rarely they have been known to fall from the sky. Rarely, not daily. Another theory is that it's a form of honeydew, but not the melon that goes by that name. And bear with me, this is a bit of an explanation. In Exodus, the name manna is proposed to have been a derivative of the question, what is it? Which in may be Aramaic, not Hebrew, would have been spoken as manhu. Then in Arabic, the word man, at least in an old form of the language, may mean a form of plant lice. Plant lice. Yummy. So, in a language other than Hebrew, it may be translatable as plant lice. Hopefully edible plant lice, at least. Any port in a storm, I guess. But what does this have to do with honeydew? Well, in other cultures, what is known as honeydew is associated with insects with scales. But it's not the insect itself. Instead, honeydew is a sugar-rich, gummy liquid that's secreted by various insects as they feed on plant sap. When their mouth part penetrates the plant, the sugary, high-pressure liquid is forced out of their, um, rear. 
I've never really thought about it, but now that I have, these are the same clear spots that can be dropped on your car if you park under a tree that such insects are feeding on. Back in the Sinai climate, this secretion would dry out rapidly in the heat of the sun, and would even possibly turn white, yellow, or brown. In the region, not only is this honeydew considered food, but it's actually a delicacy, and it's relatively nutritious. But that's not all. There's a certain insect that feeds on the tamarisk, specifically known as the tamarisk manna scale. The females produce large quantities of honeydew that solidify into thick layers on plant leaves in arid regions, but still mostly sugar and not likely to be pounded into cakes, especially those that taste like bread baked with oil. There's a different but similar insect secretion, this one coming from a bug known by several names, most commonly the Gezengivi Gezo, or sometimes men, or the Turkish Kedret Helvasi, occasionally Men Essima, also Diabarkumana, or Kurdish Mana. This secretion is whitish and is found in what is today western Iran, northern Iraq, and eastern Turkey. So, nowhere near Sinai, at least not today. When the secretion dries, it forms into crystalline lumps which are hard and look like a small stone. It can be pounded, then included in bread. But to be clear, it's not the basis of the bread. There's also the possibility that it was a kosher species of locust, or the sap of certain succulent plants. One such plant candidate is the alagi, a highly drought-tolerant shrub in the region. Secretions from this shrub will suppress your appetite, but still the text is clear. The manna was for sustenance for a long period of time. A few other things about manna before moving on. In the Mishnah, a 3rd century AD writing, considered the oldest work of rabbinical literature, in this work, manna is considered a natural but unique substance. The text also states that manna was created during the twilight of the sixth day of creation. The ground it was deposited on was swept clean by a northern wind and subsequent rains. In different rabbinical literature, manna was ground in a heavenly mill for the use of the righteous, but the unrighteous weren't left out as some unground manna was set aside for them, but they did have to grind it themselves. As for the collection of the manna, Exodus reads that each day one omer of manna was gathered per family member. Of course, I covered the unit of measure known as an omer in the last episode, but just think of it as under a U.S. gallon, or about 3.6 liters. The amount gathered was regardless of how much effort was put into the gathering. A Midrash writing describes this as some families were diligent enough to go into the surrounding fields to gather manna, while others just lay down on the ground and caught it with their outstretched hands. No matter the method, they all got the same amount. Manna was also used in a different manner. The Talmud another early A.D. Jewish rabbinical writing, 
claims that the amount collected by each family was used to solve disputes about the ownership of slaves. And before I go through this, please recognize that I used the word owner because at the time, well, unfortunately, people were enslaved and they were owned by others. In no way, none, is it any sort of an endorsement of that practice. It's merely a historical reference. Moving along. The identification as to which household the slave belonged to was pretty straightforward. Since the number of omers of manna each household could gather would indicate how many people were legitimately part of that household, the omers of manna for stolen slaves could be gathered only by the lawful owners, and therefore lawful owners would have spare omers of manna, and the illegitimate owners would be short some amount of manna. There was also something else. According to the Talmud, manna was found near the homes of those with a strong belief in God, and far from the homes of those with doubts. It was also of no use to Gentiles, to the point that they couldn't even grasp it. Literally, it would slip out of their hands. The Midrash Tanhuma reads that manna would melt, and this liquid form would flow into streams. It could then be consumed by animals. This would in turn give the consuming animals meat a particular flavor, perhaps sweet. Then, this meat could be eaten by Gentiles, but this was the only way they could learn the taste of manna, very indirectly. Also, classical rabbinical literature claims that manna fell in very large quantities each day. It holds that manna was layered out over 2,000 cubits square, between 50 and 60 cubits in height, enough to nourish the Israelites for 2,000 years, and it could be seen from the palaces of every king in the east and west. So, let's put those measurements, the cubits, into a relatable modern context. A biblical cubit is thought to have been about 18 inches. Other societies at the time had a cubit between about 17 and 21 inches. But, to keep it simple, I'll stick with 18 inches. This is roughly 46 centimeters. So, 2,000 cubits square, I'll assume is an area 2,000 by 2,000 cubits. Not an area that adds up to 2,000 square cubits. So, the same as an area 45 by 45 cubits since 45 is roughly the square root of 2,000. I know, pedantic. Anyway, I'm trying to keep it simple. And I'll stick with the smaller 50 cubits high. So, plug 2,000 cubits square by 50 high in a spreadsheet, and you end up with a volume of 200 million cubic cubits. Convert that to cubic feet and you get 675 million cubic feet. There are about 7.5 gallons per cubic foot, and assuming every person got a gallon a day, you get enough to feed over 5 billion people daily. In a different context, this would fill over 7,000 Olympic swimming pools, given these vast quantities. This portion of the rabbinical literature is considered by many to likely be merely a metaphor. Moving along. 
Finally, classical rabbinical literature also reads that the fragrance of manna was used in an Israelite perfume. There are Christian vegetarians who say that God had originally intended man not to eat meat because plants cannot move and killing them would not be sinful. Therefore, since manna is a non-meat substance, it is used to support this theory. They also point to a different passage in Numbers chapter 31 that reads, Then a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quails from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits deep on the ground. So the people worked all that day and night, and all the next day, gathering the quails, the least anyone gathered was ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So that's why some Christians don't eat meat. There's one other interesting tidbit, somewhat indirect, about manna. Many believe that the Sabbath was instituted with manna. Remember, this is a pre-Ten Commandments period, with, of course, one of the commandments being to keep the seventh day holy. Exodus 16 has Moses telling the people, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake, and boil what you want to boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not become foul. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, and they found none. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you food for two days. Each of you stay where you are. Do not leave your place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. End quote. Of the three translations I use for this podcast, the King James, the New Revised Standard, and the NIV, only the New Revised Standard has the word Sabbath earlier in the edition, in Genesis when God created everything, and it's in a header, not in the text itself. In the other two versions, Exodus 16 is the first use of the word Sabbath. Exodus reads that the Israelites were given, and of course ate, the manna for 40 years. When it stopped, exactly when it stopped, is a bit of an argument. Not that it matters incredibly much. Some say it stopped when Moses died. Others say it stopped when they reached the border of Canaan. And even others say it stopped on the day after the annual Passover festival when the Israelites had reached Gilgal, a city in Canaan. The general consensus is that it stopped when the Israelites settled and were able to grow their own crops. 
At the end of chapter 16, we're told that God instructed Moses to keep a small amount of manna in an Omer-sized pot or jar, and he placed it facing or possibly in the Ark of the Covenant. The book of Hebrews, in the ninth chapter, clarifies this and states that the manna was placed in the Ark, along with Aaron's staff that had budded in the stone tablets of the covenant. Classical rabbinical sources record that the manna pot was made of gold. In some rabbinical sources, the pot was only there for the generation following Moses. Other sources claim that it survived at least until the time of Jeremiah. Of course, the ark, along with its contents, later disappeared. And manna, the word and the concept, has taken on a figurative sense in our modern language. It's used as a name for various plants, usually ones producing a consumable sap. It's also occasionally used for liquids thought to have healing properties, including several cosmetics. And that's it for manna, and this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll begin with a discussion on the other food provided to the Israelites, albeit temporarily, and that's quail. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.